I'd ask you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians now. Uh, Tonight, we start a new chapter. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3, and what we're going to do is we're going to cover verses 1 through 11. Paul is here turning um, his attention a little bit away from those things that he has been talking about, and he is going to um, address the Judaizers. He's going to address uh, the potential of a works righteousness gospel coming into um, in, into view or into the, the fellowship of the Philippians. So he wants them to be aware of this. So we're going to read Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And I would remind you, this is God's holy and inspired word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And here we will end our reading of God's word. Let's come to him in prayer and ask for his blessing in our time meditating on his word. Lord, we do want to come and ask that you would help us. You've heard our prayer before you before with this regard. Lord, we are looking for more than just reading your word and for more than just thinking about it in some academic way. Lord, we are looking to hear your voice. So would you help us tonight? Would you help us on the one hand to be like Bereans, to ask ourselves whether what we hear is so? And on the other hand, Lord, would you help us to be teachable and to listen? Lord, would you help us to clearly hear your voice? That is our desire, to be stirred and to have your direction. Would you speak for, glory, for Christ's glory's sake? It's in his name we'd ask. Amen. You know what's super frustrating? Bad internet connections. 
I'm telling you. Have you, have you ever been working on a project that you, you're working on for a while, or maybe you're filling out a form online, like you're on your phone, you're on your tablet, you're on your notebook, whatever it is, and you're, you're working on this, and all of a sudden, the thing freezes. You see it, and you're like, no, 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 no. Not now. Not now. Or maybe uh, you've been on a Zoom call, one of these Zoom meetings, and you're sitting there, and you're talking, and then all of a sudden, the person on the uh, Right? They just like freeze and get stuck there. And uh, you're, you're waiting. You're waiting. Uh, do you feel spiritually stuck? Dry? You have a desire maybe inside to move forward, but you don't. It's like one of those dreams where you want to run, right? You want to yell, you want to scream, you want to run, but you, but you can't. You're just stuck there. Do you ever feel spiritually stagnant? In our text, Paul urges the Philippians to stay the course and to remain committed to the gospel uh, this is a point he's been making throughout the text. If you, if you reflect back on our past messages. And here, Paul warns the Philippians against a false gospel, a works-oriented gospel. And he encourages the Philippians, by his own example, to depend on righteousness that comes from God through faith. But But who is Paul's audience? He's not talking to a a group of unbelievers in some marketplace of the city. No, he's talking to the Philippians. This is a good church. They're a gospel-oriented church. They're a mission-minded church. They're a church that wants to multiply. And still... Paul wants them to be vigilant and aware. He he wants them to grow in their knowledge and intimacy with the Lord, to be fully and completely enveloped in the gospel and walking closely with him. So how can we grow in intimacy with the Lord? Well, let's begin uh, looking at our text tonight. We're going to start with flee things that discourage knowing the Lord. Flee things that discourage knowing the Lord. In the first six verses of our text, Paul tells the Philippians to remain committed to the gospel that they've received from him. He he wants them to reject the works righteousness gospel that continues to try to come in and infect the churches. This is the the tragic mistake of believing that you'll go to heaven if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds or that you'll be forgiven if you perform various tasks. In verse 1, Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Paul keeps writing the same things. What's that? What, what does he keep writing? He keeps telling the Philippians to rejoice. He says, rejoice, Philippians. 
This is the third time he's told them to rejoice, and he's going to tell them again in chapter 4 this, this same thing. And Paul tells the Philippians to rejoice at the beginning and end of certain sections of this letter. And you'll notice that Paul's reminders to rejoice are connected to suffering for Christ's sake. They're connected to suffering in connection with advancing the gospel. And here Paul reminds them, the Philippians, to rejoice before he warns them of doctrinal challenges that they're going to face. Paul tells the Philippians in verse 2, Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Here he's using searing rhetoric in order to address the Judaizers with their own vocabulary. This is vocabulary that this group, this group of people known as the Judaizers use. They are people who believe in Christ as Messiah, but they are also at the same time saying that we need to keep the ceremonial laws that have been fulfilled and are now abrogated. And so they keep saying things like, you must be circumcised in order to be saved. You must keep the feasts. You must observe days. There are things you need. Yes, Christ died for salvation, but you need to do these things as well if you would be saved. And so they use this vocabulary speaking of um, these people who are close, but not quite in yet. They call them dogs. They call them evildoers. And so Paul is flipping their language around. You see, uh, first century Israelites They didn't have pets. And dogs in their area were coyote-like scavengers who fed on roadkill and filth and garbage that they could find. And so for the Jews, a dog was a perfect metaphor for Gentiles and lapsed Jews because like dogs, they didn't keep the dietary laws either. But here, Paul refers to the Judaizers as the unclean dogs who stand outside of the covenant. You see how he's flipping the language around on these people. The Philippians would have been aware of them too. The Judaizers have been around since you might remember the book of Galatians written 15 years earlier. This um, is, is this false doctrine, this idea has been plaguing the church all of these years. You see, the Judaizers said faith in Christ was not enough In addition to what Jesus accomplished on the cross, they also needed to do a satisfactory job of keeping dietary laws and various feasts, as I've said. And if you were male, circumcision was required. That's why Paul says here, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. It's a mutilation in that sense because it wasn't necessary. Well, the Judaizers claimed to be doing the works of the law. They claimed that those works that they were doing pointed to their righteousness. But Paul, he calls them what? Evildoers. Paul is saying that rather than doing the works of the law, they are literally evil workers. 
The irony of the Judaizers is that for all of their attention to the works of the law, it's that that made them evil workers and therefore spiritual Gentiles or dogs. Circumcision was a sign of God's covenant people in the Old Testament, but the sign was replaced by baptism when Jesus came, and the Judaizers refused to accept that change. The Judaizers insisted that circumcision was a sign of true believers. So that's how Paul uses the word in verse 3. Notice what he writes. Paul writes, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says we are the true believers who put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in ourselves or in circumcision or law-keeping to find forgiveness. No, we put our confidence in Jesus. We put our confidence in the gospel. Look out for false gospels. Reject cults like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Oneness, Pentecostals, who have a works righteousness gospel among their other fatal heresies. And don't succumb to the false doctrines of the devil. He is the father of lies, and he will tell you how disappointed the Lord is in you. The devil whispers a works righteousness gospel into our ears again and again. He wants to rob you of your joy. He wants to rob you of that freedom that Christ bought. He wants you to pick up the guilt of your past sins. He wants to keep you from praying. He wants to cause separation between you and God. He wants you to work for your salvation. He wants you to work hard and to never attain. He wants to keep you from drawing close to the Lord. Well, Paul wants the church to be on the lookout for these errors. The works righteousness gospel was very personal to Paul. He's from a similar background, right? He was a Pharisee. He was like, like a Pharisee of Pharisees. So he's, he's not done with the Judaizers. Look how he ends verse 3 and then begins verse 4. Put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he's got reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul says the works righteousness gospel is worthless. Salvation comes from casting yourself on God's mercy and not by works of the law. But if you want to play the self-righteousness game, let's play. I was meticulous at law-keeping. If anyone else thinks he's got reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In verse 5, he writes, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul says, I started life 
in compliance with the law. He says, I'm not a convert from paganism. I'm not a late-in-life type of convert. I'm an eight-dayer, an insider from birth. He's letting his, the pride and, and the self-righteousness flow, right? He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a pure-blooded Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, And unlike the diaspora Jews who only speak Greek, I can speak Hebrew. Paul's parents made sure that he had the best education in Jerusalem. He studied under the famous Rabbi Gamaliel. And at the end of verse 5, Paul continues to boast in his achievements as well. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. Right, the Pharisees were uh, the strict conservatives of the ancient church. And Paul came from a long line of proud Pharisees. We learn that in Acts 23. In verse 6, he says, As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. You see, Paul was very zealous for a works righteousness religion. He was willing to kill for it, to protect it. He finishes verse 6 writing, As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Notice that Paul didn't say sinless. The Pharisees assumed that they'd be uh, forgiven, that they'd receive forgiveness through their rituals and through their procedures. Paul's conduct was blameless according to Pharisaic doctrine. And this is how his peers would have saw him. You see, Paul was a brilliant, unyielding Pharisee that could hold his own with any of these guys. As a matter of fact, surpass them. So Paul plays a self-righteousness game with the Judaizers. He compares himself to them to point out the pride and arrogance and futility of it all. A man boasting in his own righteousness and compared to someone else is like a skunk comparing um, his smell to another skunk, or like a potato bug who compares how good-looking he is to another potato bug. Scripture says no one will ever be made righteous with God by the works of the law. Rather, the law shows us that we are broken and sinful and in need of mercy and forgiveness. Believer, flee the sin of pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. Do you want to grow in intimacy with the Lord? Do you want to know him? Jesus is gentle and humble at heart. Know the Lord by walking with him in gentleness and humility. Pursue things that encourage knowing the Lord. That's our second heading. Pursue things that encourage knowing the Lord. So Paul warns the Philippians about the Judaizers and their false gospel. He said, according to your false gospel, I've got reason to boast. And then he gives a list of his accomplishments. And this is all serving uh, as a masterful setup. How so? 
because his boasting paves the way for his remarkable rejection of them all. In verse 7, Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. When Paul was confronted by Jesus, he had to do some accounting, right? He had to do some quick calculation, some fast math. When, when Christ enters your life, sometimes it's slow and subtle, and other times it's loud and in an instant. And you might remember Paul's testimony. He's traveling to Damascus, right? He's about to arrest Christians in the city, and all of a sudden, uh, Jesus comes to him. There's a huge, bright light, a blinding light. He hears uh, God's voice audibly. And meanwhile, the Holy Spirit is changing his heart and his mind and his will that he could embrace Christ. And Paul begins to do the math. His heritage, his schooling, his career, his family, his friends, his status in the community, everything that he has worked for all these years. His sin. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And I've been a part of murdering Stephen. And I'm persecuting God's people. I'm physically assaulting Christ's bride. God is holy. Sin can't be in his presence. Jesus offers a free pardon to all who believe. If you trust him, if you turn from your sin and follow him. And Paul believed. He embraced Jesus as his Lord. He wanted to walk with the risen Christ. Jesus is alive. He's alive. And Paul wanted to know Christ Jesus in a close and intimate relationship. And so that superseded everything else, all the past, everything he had worked for. Draw your attention to verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see, Paul turned from his sin and he followed Jesus as Lord. And he has no regrets all these years later. There is nothing more valuable than knowing the risen Savior. In him is forgiveness and reconciliation with God. No more guilt, no more shame, and a living and active relationship with God. God speaks through his word and through preaching If you're an unbeliever, I know it's hard to understand, but he does. His word comes to life and he speaks. And he interacts with us through providence. We were created to serve the Lord and to be in an intimate relationship with him. His call to you is to walk hand in hand with him day by day, every day. He wants to walk with you. 
He set aside one day in seven to be with you every week. It's his intention to speak to you, to talk to you, to know you, to walk with you. Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He refers to the things he left behind as rubbish. They were of no value in comparison to knowing Christ and walking with him. But Paul has been talking about righteousness here, right? He's been talking about uh, righteousness and where it comes from. Does it come from a works righteousness gospel? Does, where, where does it come from? He's been talking about how God perceives us, what makes us acceptable in God's sight. The Judaizers insist that it's law-keeping. And Paul counts that as rubbish, as worthless. In verse 9, Paul says, I want to be found in Christ, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul desires the righteousness that comes through Christ's faithful obedience to the Father on the cross when Jesus drank the cup of death for our sins. The righteousness that is brought about by Christ's faithfulness and is received through faith. As Paul writes these things to the Philippians, his own heart is becoming deeply stirred with the preciousness of Christ and his gospel. And inspired by the Holy Ghost, Paul displays his heart which is filled with longing and love. He breaks out in worship. It had been nearly 30 years since Paul's encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. And on that day, on that very day, Paul came to know the Lord. But in verse 10, Paul writes, that I may know him. Oh, that I might know Jesus. Paul expresses the longing in the Christian heart to grow in intimacy with the Lord. He expresses a longing for an ever-deepening, an ever-widening personal knowledge of him. But maybe you feel stagnant and dry. How do you stir your affection? How do you grow to love someone? Well, you need to spend time with them, don't you? You need to talk. You need to devote yourself to that relationship. Those of you who are married, you can recount times during your relationship where you spent so much time investing in that other person that you would grow that relationship, that you would build that love. You spent so much time on the phone that your ear hurt, right? And, and so much time just talking and laughing that sometimes your, your face would hurt. You invested time. 
Do you desire to grow in your affection for the Lord? Devote yourself. Devote yourself to that relationship. Again, he's, he's spent or he's set aside one day in seven for this very purpose. You should expect that he is planning to meet you. Devote yourself to prayer and to reading his word, to reading books about him, to doing things that you might know him more. Spend time in his presence. Dedicate yourself to the relationship. In verse 10, Paul says that he wants to know the power of the resurrection. He wants to continue to take part in God's power. God's resurrecting power it's that same life-giving power that raised Christ from the dead. It's, it's that power that God uses to bring us from spiritual death to life. It's the power God uses to bring about and sustain new life in every Christian. It's a power you can ask for. In prayer, Paul experienced this power when he was changed from a self-righteous Pharisee to a humble and dependent follower of Christ. And Paul continued to rely upon that same God-given power to transform him and sustain him as he followed Christ. You need to be empowered to follow him. And, And you'll Feel that need, especially when he calls you to suffer for his sake. And we remember that Paul is writing from his prison cell. And that's because he will not stop spreading the gospel. He writes, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul wants to share in Christ's sufferings And that word share is a translation of the Greek word koinonia. You probably, many of you are probably familiar with the word koinonia. It's often translated as fellowship. Paul wants to fellowship with Christ in his suffering. He wants to be there with him. He wants to experience what the Lord is experiencing or had experienced. He wants to share in these sufferings. He wants to know the mind of Christ. He wants to honor Jesus with his life. The ironic thing is that he wants to use his life to become like Christ in his death. Do you see that at the end of verse 10? Paul wants to take up his Christ daily and follow, take up his cross daily and follow Christ. He wants God to conform him to the image of his son. Paul, simply put, wants to be like Jesus. He wants to remain willing to lose his life if it means that unbelievers will hear the gospel and repent and believe and gain eternal life. You see, he wants to follow Christ's model. In verse 11, Paul expresses his desire to remain faithful and focused regardless of his suffering and circumstances, and he expresses what matters to him when he says that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection 
of the dead. Was Paul uncertain about his participation in the resurrection? Not at all. What was uncertain was the circumstances that were leading up to it in his life. Paul is uncertain if the Judaizers will harass the Philippians, but he wants them to be ready if they do. He wants them to be clear and focused and committed to the gospel. He wants them to be found not having a righteousness that is their own that comes from the law, but that which comes through the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness from God that is received through faith. In our text, Paul encourages the Philippians to stay the course and to remain committed to the gospel. And Paul warns the Philippians against false works-oriented gospels and encourages them by his example to depend on righteousness that comes from God through faith. In this text, you're confronted, of course, with the reality that behind the term gospel is a risen Savior, is a Savior, a savior who is alive and well and is wanting and willing to embrace you. When you repent and believe, God declares you righteous. He's like a judge who drops down a gavel in judgment and declares you not guilty. And that marks the beginning of a living and active relationship with the Lord. May you know him. May you know him in the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, you may attain the resurrection of the dead. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, this text. And we thank you that you continue to preach the gospel to us, though some of us have heard it a thousand times over. Lord, you must know that we need to hear this again and again. You know, Lord, how our hearts are works-oriented, and you know how the devil harasses us continually, telling us that you don't like us. Lord, we uh, need to know your love, and we need to hear the gospel again and again. We thank you for it, Lord. And we would ask that you would help us uh, to grow to know you. Uh, Lord, we would continue uh, to pray that you would give us ears, uh, that we would uh, hear you speak in your word. Lord, we do need your encouragement. So we'd ask that you would help us, that you would pour into us your love, that it might reflect back to you. Holy Spirit, we would ask for your help, that you would move in our hearts and our lives. Give us a hunger for your word. Give us hunger for prayer. Give us a desire to be in your presence, to invest in our relationship with you. Lord, we want to know you. We want uh, to be stirred for your glory. We'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.